It was the prettiest block we'd been to yet in Wilmington, Delaware. Brick houses, trim patches of lawn. As we approached the house, I remember noticing the afternoon summer sun lighting up the porch like a stage. Hi. How are you doing? This is a nice block. And then, two minutes after walking into the living room, we were introduced to all the dead people. An urn on the dining room table. That was a cousin who'd been shot. Another cousin on the side table, also shot. Two obituaries on the TV console. People be scared. Like, like people be really scared. Like, it, I never had to tell, like, so many of my friends, be safe, be safe. This is Fami, a teenager I'd seen posting on Facebook. He'd become a local specialist in mourning memes, particularly about this one kid who died, a friend of his from the basketball team. Here's a video Fami made on a windy day at the kid's gravesite. My bro, man, fucking homie. I miss my boy, man. On the day he died, Fami remembers seeing him on this little bridge they crossed to get to class, standing where he always stood. I think as soon as I got home, something just told me, like, get on Facebook. Like, something just kept saying, get on Facebook. First thing I seen, like, I didn't see nothing else. First thing I seen was R.I.P. Brandon. I'm like, Brandon? I'm like, what Brandon? Brandon. Brandon Wingo. That's the boy we came here to learn about. The way the local papers summarized the story during the trial, Brandon Wingo posted one snide thing on Facebook, and a friend of the person he insulted shot him one day after school. At the trial later, the district attorney asked another young man involved in a similar shooting, is one social media post enough to get someone shot? And the young guy on the stand said yes, with no elaboration, implying that if the DA weren't so old, or if he knew anything about anything, that would be obvious. I grew up in Jamaica, Queens in the mean 80s. I remember kids at my school getting killed over nothing. Nothing meaning sneakers or members-only jackets. But this was an even flimsier version of nothing. In fact, that social media post, which allegedly got Brandon shot, that post never turned up. Everyone said they knew about it, but there were no screenshots in the trial. No one we talked to could show us a copy or remember exactly the words. In fact, in the trial, it came up that even the guy who shot Brandon never actually saw it. And yet, the effect of those electronic ghost words and other words on social media had apparently made the real city of Wilmington the most dangerous place in America to be a teenager. In 2016, when Brandon made that post, Wilmington, Delaware, a tiny city of just over 71,000, had spiraled into the violence we saw memorialized in Fami's living room. The city was notching nearly twice as many teenage shootings per capita as Chicago. I'm telling you, I don't like, like I just don't go out. What about girls? I usually come here. <laughs> <laughs> I might, I might go to their house. Like, it depends how far they live. Like, they ain't in walking distance. I don't know. I might can't, I might can't make that trip. This is Invisibilia. I'm Elise Spiegel. And I'm Hannah Rosen. And today we are looking at the relationship between fake and real. We obviously have been grappling with that a lot in the political arena, fighting about fake news versus real facts. But in Wilmington, this argument is not at all theoretical. There, teens were shooting each other, but not over the kind of stuff that you usually think about, like turf or drugs or money. Most of the conflict had grown from something much less tangible, online lives. In Wilmington, there seemed to be new rules about what counts as real, with life or death stakes. And we found ourselves wondering, is that what's coming for the rest of us? Stick around. So Hannah is going to be telling the story today. She and producer Yo-Wei Shaw spent a couple of months last summer in Wilmington just trying to figure out what was going on. Here's Hannah. It's funny to think about it now, but I walked into Wilmington with an old-school kind of plan. In the local papers, I'd seen a photo from the trial of Brandon as this baby-faced kid in a maroon blazer, like a happy prep school kid. And yet in those same papers, his murder was described as part of a gang war. This post he'd made had apparently gotten him in trouble with a rival gang. It was a confusing picture. So I got kind of fixated on figuring out who this kid really was. And to do that, 
I set aside all the social media stuff for a second and started gathering the facts on the ground. Which is easy to do in Wilmington because it's tiny. It feels like everyone knows everyone else. And at first, I was hearing what felt like basic stuff. Brandon was a freshman in high school at the time of his death and a rising star on the basketball team. Outside of school, he spent most of his waking hours with two of his cousins. But he had a lot of family, and they were pretty close. His grandma said he loved her mayonnaise sandwiches. And it seemed like he was pretty much a good kid. Like, I heard this story a lot where he was on a field trip, and he slipped another kid some of his shirts because the kid didn't have enough clean shirts of his own. Not that he was perfect. No one was telling us that. But when I talked to the people who knew him best, like his dad, Brad Wingo, what I came up with wasn't any dark secret. It was more like Nickelodeon antics. What do you think is the worst thing he did as a teenager? Fake run away. What do you mean? <laughs> I told him he was moving me and he ran away. I can't even pick him up. He didn't think I was coming. This was with grades. And I came to get him. I said, yo, go get your shit, whatever, whatever. He went upstairs. He's up there for a minute. Me and his mom were talking. And then he came downstairs, we're talking. And he slid out the door. Also, Brandon rode his dirt bike on the street where he wasn't supposed to. He smoked weed and occasionally dealt, as one friend told us. The worst I learned was that he and his friends were once charged with pushing a guy off a bike and trying to steal his wallet. No one ever proved that. And his dad says it was more of a wrong place at the wrong time situation. Basically. But then one day, a new picture of Brandon emerged. And it was literally a picture. Oh, here we go. I found it. We'd spent a couple of days at a summer camp interviewing Brandon's friends. His Twitter is ReaperBoy302. And then at the end of our second day, a counselor there, who'd been a friend of his, pulled up Brandon's Instagram and his two Twitter accounts that hadn't showed up at the trial. Wait a minute. So that's not good. Yeah, not good. Scrolling through Brandon's online life, we just saw lots of guns. I can turn the brightness up for you. A Twitter banner of a guy pointing a gun right at you, a clip of a Chicago rapper pulling out his machine gun, the water pistol emoji, photos of Brandon trying to contort his sweet baby face into a mean grimace and pointing his hand in the shape of a gun at the camera. And then there was this one. Brandon on the couch with four friends, all of them making hand symbols, and the caption, a lot of shooters in my clique. Gang, let's go do a hit. For a minute, I had that feeling like I've discovered a secret. Like maybe to figure out Brandon, I did need to go through his social media. Maybe his online life would open the door to some dark side of Brandon that his family and some of his school pals knew nothing about. A Brandon who was so casual around machine guns and gangs that his fate made a certain kind of sad sense. So I decided to ask Fami from the living room and his cousin Keon, who was there that day, about it. Here's Keon. Here, come look at this picture, right? This is from his Instagram, right? That's Brandon. Do you recognize this? Yeah, but that ain't nothing but a, a song verse. Yeah, that's, a, that's just a song <laughs> verse. Like, he didn't mean it. He just was just writing a song verse. Right, dummy. Rap lyrics. Of course, 15-year-old boys post rap lyrics. Is it real or is it not? That's what I'm trying to figure out. It's just really a caption. Okay, so maybe it was just nothing. But there did seem to be this big gap between Maroon Blazer Brandon and online Brandon. So I felt like I had to talk to some kids to get some second and third and fourth opinions. How seriously should I take these posts? All the young people, all the young people. I found about 15 teenagers who knew Brandon hanging out on a stoop at the Riverside Projects, dancing to music. They were not so interested in talking to me. But then I asked them, what does it mean when a kid posts a machine gun video on Twitter? And this kid who goes by Savage, who's a friend of Brandon's, started talking about how everyone they know does stuff like that. Like, this friend of theirs, who will not be named, who posed with a wad of cash in his hand that was not actually his. It was his mom's. So basically like this, you go in the house, you see your mom probably counting the money to go pay their electric. Mom, can I see it real fast? She's going to let you see it. You go in the room, go on Instagram, and then after that, they think you got all the money in the world. You take that money and give it back to your mom. Just flexing with it on Instagram. you go in the street, somebody asks you for $2, I don't got it. No, <laughs> 
jungles always showing love. You grew up like a bitch, why you acting like a thug? Ah, flexing, posing. We all do some version of this. Curate an aspirational online self. Most of us have one, and we outfit it with different props and costumes. Like heirloom tomatoes, the dog we just rescued, a protest poster, a funny, casual quip we spend 10 minutes crafting. This person has a relationship to us, but it is not us. At least that's been the traditional way of seeing it. And what the Wilmington kids told us is that in 2015, there were certain flex tropes that got you respect. Posing with a wad of cash fanned out in your hand. Smoking an impossibly huge and perfectly rolled blunt. Or taking it one step further, a gun. Now maybe you're posing with a gun so people won't mess with you, which a lot of young people told us is a very real thing in Wilmington. But that doesn't mean you have a gun, and it definitely doesn't mean you're about to shoot somebody with it. Like this one girl Damaris told us. A lot of people just be, like, posting stuff for social media likes. Like, you posted a picture of a gun, got 200 likes in this picture, but you don't have no gun. And then when, then when you see the person in person, like, they don't... They don't never have nothing, like, and then you ask them, like, wasn't that you that just posted that picture? And they'd be like, oh, girl, that was my cousin's sister's boyfriend's ex-aunt's gun. What? (laughs) You could take the stuff Brandon was posting online, literally, that he was a hard shooter with a gun ready to kill. Or you could decide he was just flexing tough to get some clout. When I was talking to Damaris and Kian and the rest of the kids, I had this idea in my head that there would be clear rules about telling the difference. Who's just posing online and who's a real, real shooter? Who just likes the music and how can you tell? But here's the main thing I learned. You can't always tell. Like, the kids themselves can't tell. Which to me, seems like the magic of flexing. The whole way it works. You just have to put out an image that people could believe. But that's not the same as saying it's true that it's actually you. Which brings us to the one critical post Brandon made, the post that came up later in the murder trial, the one that created an avalanche, not just for Brandon, but for the entire city of Wilmington. Before I describe it, though, I need to lay out some things that I learned while reporting. Brandon lived on the east side of Wilmington, and some of his friends and cousins called themselves a crew, like a lot of other friend groups in Wilmington then. They even gave themselves a name, Only my brothers. How deep Brandon was in this crew, it's hard to know. He was popular, he had a lot of friends all over the city. Mostly at that point, the crew was just a group of friends who went to parties and hung out on Fifth Street, with some of the kids occasionally getting into trouble with the law. But then starting in 2015, only my brothers started to have conflict with another crew. Again, with the aspirational, flexish name, the Shoot to Kill crew, which had not, in fact, shot and killed anyone yet, although there had been a few shots fired between them. Remember, Wilmington is not a big town, so boys in opposite crews often knew each other. They might have gone to elementary school or played basketball together. We heard of cases where two brothers were in opposite crews. But then in the spring of 2016, they ramped up insulting each other online, mostly on a public Facebook page that served as Wilmington's virtual bathroom wall of insults. Fuck the ops, which is the opposition, and fuck whoever rocking with them, 100%. Any op I see getting torched. All this talking, go do a hit or something, 100%. Back and forth on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, dozens of posts between Shoot to Kill and Only My Brothers. And probably somewhere in there is when Brandon jumped in with what became Wilmington's most infamous two-word post. R.I. Piss, Rye Five, he wrote. Or in court, they said it was R.I.P.S. Ryan. Different people tell you different things. Either way, it refers to a kid on the other side who died. R.I.P.S., a nasty version of R.I.P. Before R.I.P.S., there'd probably been 30 posts equally as insulting, and after R.I.P.S., probably 30 more. Likely, Brendan didn't think anything of his post. No one really did. Because at that point, no one really thought much about the possibility that flexing like you were hard with the ops meant that someone out there could choose to believe that you were in real life hard with the ops. But then came May 19th, 2016. 
Can I ask you about the day of the murder? I know it wasn't raining. I'm pretty sure it was hot. This is Brad Wingo again, Brandon's dad. He knows it happened just after three in the afternoon, when Brandon was walking home from school with four girls. He never rode the bus, never took the bus. He always got a ride to school. He's too lazy to walk. They were strolling, and Brandon was gossiping with his friend Ariana about another girl he thought was cute. And he was the pretty boy and all that stuff, so... And this is how it was described at trial. Just a few blocks away, two boys from the Shoot to Kill crew were cruising around the east side in their car. They'd heard about Brandon's post and were feeling hot about it, and they drove towards his school. The boy said, I'll drop you off, and he drops him off. And then Ariana would testify at trial. Everything seemed to stop. Brandon told her, the boy was walking up, and she said... Brandon was like, there go the ops. And then the boy must have stopped, she said, because he yelled something and then pulled out the gun. The boy was now pointing a 9 millimeter handgun at Brandon, according to the trial testimony. And I'm guessing that in his head, he was pointing it at the boy he'd seen on Instagram. The boy with the mean mug, pointing his finger like a gun and bragging about a lot of shooters in his clique. But this was flesh-and-blood Brandon, a pretty boy who snuck out of the house some nights, who smoked weed and liked mayonnaise sandwiches, and was starting to get into teenage prankster kind of trouble, but not too much trouble. That Brandon was now running fast, trying to get away. But that Brandon was also invisible to the person holding the real gun. So that Brandon didn't have a chance. He ended up shooting Brandon's leg or butt first when he was running. According to the trial testimony, Brandon made it to the street between two parked cars, and then the boy shot him in the head. Someone later said it was like the shooter was acting out a scene in a movie. Brandon fell to the ground, and the shooter took off running. When they wouldn't let us in, nobody in, I knew and I used to work at the hospital with construction, but I seen all this happen before. And I never went and looked at him or nothing. His mom did. I ain't doing that. I wasn't doing that. Why not? Mm. You want to see dead people? I don't know. I, don't, I ain't into that. I don't even like viewings. I don't look. I just walk by. At first, I thought maybe Brad was just squeamish, not into blood and guts, and not able to deal with the reality of death. But after talking to him over a few months, I realized that it's just the opposite. Brad is actually just a realist, allergic to hype and drama and phoniness. And when his son died, Brad skipped over the denial phase straight to, he's dead. Just give me the facts. What the hell happened? So he friended a bunch of Brandon's friends on social media. He learned about the gang signs and the hashtags and the emojis. He was looking for some reason with roots. People kept asking me questions I didn't have no answers to. Probably asking the same thing you're asking. I wish I knew. But like I said, the evidence and what from what they say in court is because of our social media posts. That's all they can come up with. How do you feel about that? Oh, I feel that's got to be the dumbest shit I ever heard. And it just don't make sense to me. I'm totally lost. I mean, real-life Brandon didn't insult people. He didn't even pick fights. To a hard realist like Brad, you just can't get shot over two words that disappear into the cloud. So, like, what the hell? I don't... It makes... It's so difficult to understand a world... It's hard for me to understand. You're trying to understand. I'm trying to understand. I don't understand. Obviously, he didn't think he was going to get shot. That's reality. So you can't say, what was he thinking? He wasn't thinking he was going to get shot. All these kids talk like that online. So it's like, did he have any thought that that's what it could come to in posting that one thing? I'm going to say 100% no. So what did he think he was doing? I don't know. I don't know. I didn't know he posted it. In this confusion about what was going on and why, 
it didn't stop with Brandon. The confusion spread like a virus to Brandon's friends and his enemies and the police and the courts until an entirely new code governed every part of the city. A code built on a giant misunderstanding about image and reality and how quickly the boundary between them is shifting. More on that after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Wix.com. Invisibilia dives into human stories that shape behavior. With Wix, you can create your own professional website to showcase your own stories. Choose a template you love and customize it with text, images, and videos. With hundreds of intuitive design features, you can tell your story exactly the way you want. Get started by going to Wix.com. That's W-I-X.com slash Invisibilia to get 10% off. Support also comes from NCR. You run a small business, which means work-life balance doesn't exist. NCR Silver is more than a point of sale. NCR Silver is a business management platform that can help make running your business easier, giving you more time in your day. Understand your business like the big brands do. NCR Silver helps save time and reach your goals faster. NCR Silver. Search NCR Silver. Hey, everybody. I wanted to tell you about this new NPR podcast called Life Kit. It's the NPR guide to navigating all of the stuff in life that there's just no way to know enough about. Stuff like investing and parenting and exercise. They have an awesome interview, for example, with Ruth Bader Ginsburg's trainer. So you should listen. Life Kit from NPR. This is Invisibilia. Hannah continues with her story. How can you make sense of someone shooting an image? I couldn't, until I read a story that seems totally unrelated and really far away, but I promise it isn't. It involves a woman named Gloria Origi, who relatively few people have heard of, and who one day found herself standing next to a man named Tim Berners-Lee, who many people have heard of because he's known as the inventor of the World Wide Web. This happened at a big academic conference. And I asked um, him to take a selfie. He was a true gentleman, and so he accepted in the end. I'm looking at it now. He seems super bored of the, I don't know, the 300th person who asked him for a selfie in the same day. (laughs) Now, an Italian philosopher who lives in Paris does not seem like the natural person to help explain a murder in Wilmington. In fact, maybe it seems like a pretentious invisibilia move, which probably it is. But we're talking to Gloria because she actually helped me understand Brandon's death. Gloria posted that selfie on her Facebook page. And because she and Berners-Lee looked like two colleagues, maybe even friends, she then got invited to a couple of big conferences on Internet studies and new technologies. As an expert on the Internet, which she is not. Being able to take a selfie with Tim Berners-Lee doesn't say anything about my genius of new technologies. I mean, but... Uh, clearly, uh, it was read by some people like this. Gloria writes about her selfie experiment in her new book called Reputation, What It Is and Why It Matters, which is the kind of I dare you to follow my logic book that jumps from evolutionary game theory to Balzac to Donald Trump's Twitter feed. And I talked to her about Brandon's online accounts, the Twitter and the Facebook posts and the picture on the couch with a caption. So am I supposed to understand that that picture was fake or that that picture was real? You're again, you're again in the fake true opposition. I think this is a, the binary way of thinking that it is very difficult to, to get rid of. Gloria helped me understand that this whole quest I was on to untangle real-life Brandon from online Brandon was a waste of time. I was clinging to this idea that there were some real facts on the ground about Brandon that should have kept him safe. He's a good kid. He loved his family. But the problem is, we've moved into a phase where the image, the version of Brandon constructed from a Facebook post, can very easily eclipse the real. And we are just stubbornly failing to reckon with the consequences of that. It doesn't matter who Brandon really was. The killers knew Brandon's family. They knew where he went to school, played basketball, how old he was. In a small city like that, no one could mistake Brandon for a real shooter. But what matters is that they seem to edit out all that information. From their post after the killing, they seem to be speaking to virtual Brandon, a worthy target in a gang war. 
R.I. Piss, be wingo, they wrote. Brandon caught a headshot. Hashtag true story. Because that's a thing we do these days, convince ourselves that this image, with all of its props and costumes, is the only real thing, and forget everything outside it. What, what I mean, that what people say about things is more important than what things are. Oh, this is another I really thing don't that like we, this idea. I know, I know. <laughs> because I'm this sure. is Trump's idea, sure. basically. We live in a post-fact society where there isn't such a no, thing. No, but as- exactly. We are managing very badly the post-fact society. I mean, you're exactly on the hot topic where it hurts. The way Gloria explains it, today, more than ever, we are flooded with information. So we rely on what other people say about things or people, their reputations, to move through the world. Like reading online reviews of what's the best restaurant, rather than doing the research ourselves. Social information is vital. It's an incredible shortcut for gathering information. But the shortcuts aren't actually all that reliable. They're built on what Gloria calls cheap signals. Just stuff people throw up online, because there's no cost to it. Like putting up a gang sign in a photo. Much easier than threatening someone to their face. So, in sum, we depend on the shortcuts, but they're not that dependable. Which can create a dangerous situation, because as we all know, there are always some people who are more clever or shameless about manipulating those signals and images than others. Yes, exactly. So, welcome to the 21st century. The strongest in terms of uh, communication will win. The most popular will be the, the new truth. So, if we don't do anything with this, we are going to go on with what we are seeing now. This is only the beginning. This is only the beginning. What a post-fact city actually looks like after the break. Support for NPR and the following message come from HBO, presenting The Case Against Adnan Syed. From director Amy Berg, the four-part documentary offers a haunting rendering of the 1999 case and the very real lives impacted by this tragic story. Digging deeper into the case where there are no easy answers, the series sheds new light on the conviction of Adnan Syed. The Case Against Adnan Syed. New episodes are Sundays at 9 p.m. only on HBO. TV streaming on demand. Support also comes from Turo, a global car-sharing marketplace. With cars available in over 5,500 cities across the U.S., U.K., Canada, and Germany, Turo offers the widest variety of cars available, often at lower cost than rental car agencies. Download the Turo app, that's T-U-R-O, or visit Turo.com today. Listeners will get $25 off their first trip when they sign up for Turo and use promo code INVISIBILIA at checkout. Terms apply. The world is complicated, and for many of us, history class was a long time ago. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's new history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline, history like you've never heard it before. This is Invisibilia. Hannah's story continues. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> my family calls me mushy, uh... I got, the, I got the name Batman from the detention center. This is Naquan Lewis. I talked to him at the James Vaughn Correctional Facility, about 45 minutes outside Wilmington. Naquan has Brandon's face tattooed on his left forearm. And he's one of 28 of Brandon's friends who were indicted after Brandon's murder for participating in what the courts and police and newspapers started to refer to as the criminal gang called Only My Brothers. Brandon's killers took his image for real, made him seem like more of a gangbanger than he actually was. But then after Brandon's death, that happened on a much larger scale. Prosecutors used social media, along with other evidence, to paint a picture of Only My Brothers as a bona fide criminal gang. Like, when you woke up that morning, what what, what was did you have for breakfast that day? Weed. <laughs> so I guess we was high and just playing around. For Naquan, it started with a cell phone video he made at home, just before Brandon's death. One more. You just describe what that scene is? Oh, that's what I'm sitting on my bed. In a bedroom he shared with his little brother, Jaleel. Another position. I want you to take like 100. Naquan has a gun in one hand and a stack of cash in the other. And Jaleel is barking orders at him to do some cool poses with it. Now, 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 now put the money in your lap. Put the money in your lap. Listen to the music. Get in your bag, bro. Throw some cash in the air and, and, and like, catch it on slow-mo on, on the iPhone. 
Jalil is the director, and he seems to have a certain feel in mind, which is like every rap video cliche ever. One more for the bitches, one more for the bitches, one more for, one, one more for the bitches. Naquan holds the gun to his own head, which is weird and not what Jalil is after. So instead, he gets Naquan to spread the cash along his bicep. It was a lot of money, so I wanted to see how far I could stretch it to. <laughs> which is not that easy, especially if you were really high. Hold on, stop. Look at the camera, look at the camera. Look at the camera. Ah, my fucking baby. And Naquan kind of pulls it off, but also he kind of looks like he's doing a magic trick. Yep. One more and then we done. One more and then we done. Except for the gun, it feels like a dumb home video. But the police did not see it that way. Do you find this threatening? No. No, no, no. No, because that's what we see all the time on, like, you know, in music videos. This is Natalie Wollishan, Naquan's court-appointed attorney. Looking at these videos, I didn't think to myself, oh, when this is all over, they're going to go out and, like, gangbang. They're going to go out and start shooting. It just seemed to me to be something that they did to occupy time. Naquan and his brother made a few of these videos, all of which ended up in the hands of the police as they were investigating Brandon's murder. And when when did those videos come up again? Like, where were you when you next saw them? Uh, in jail. <laughs> for, the, for the charges now. Uh, the charges I'm in here for now. The night Brandon died, police picked up Jaleel. They later asked if he was hunting down the guys who'd killed Brandon. Jaleel told them he was just taking a walk. Either way, he and his friends had guns with them. Real handguns in their waistbands. Jaleel later pled guilty to illegal gun possession, conspiracy to commit assault, and other charges for what he did that night. Naquan wasn't with them. No one disputes that. But police got Jaleel's cell phone, and they downloaded all the text messages and pictures and videos. Several included Naquan in some version of a rap video pose, like the one of him with the stacks of cash and the gun. Based on those and other evidence, they charged Naquan with illegal gun possession and gang participation. And here is where the videos and the version of Naquan they conjure are so powerful that they eclipse other versions of him. So let's look at the charges. First, did Naquan possess a gun? Prosecutors had decent evidence that he acquired a gun, namely a surveillance video of someone shopping for guns with him and then a picture of a gun on his bed with a serial number that they said matched the gun that was purchased in the store that day. But police never actually found a gun in his possession. They searched his house, no gun. And unlike his brother, they never caught him on the streets with a gun. The most concrete evidence that Naquan illegally possessed a gun was the video. That's the crime. Naquan possessed a gun in a video. In fact, a few videos. And each carried a five-year sentence. Which at first, Natalie thought, was a pretty weak argument. Underwhelming. I thought that that didn't rise to the level of a prosecution. I didn't think it would rise to the level of overcoming a reasonable doubt standard in front of a jury to throw up some photographs and some videos and to say, well, of course it has to be a gun because it looks like a gun. So charge number two, was Naquan a member of a criminal gang? The main evidence here was a pile of messages and social media photos of kids hanging out, wearing only my brother's sweatshirts, making hand symbols, flashing guns. And some of those kids had committed crimes. But what was Naquan's role? He shows up in only one or two pictures, mostly with his brother, in a car or standing awkwardly next to a couple of guys on the street, just, like, standing there. In his own words, he's a little weird, and he just wasn't into hanging out. Me, I'm, I'm, I'm low-key. You know what I mean? I don't, I don't like everybody in my business. It's not my, not my, not my uh, twist. Natalie has been doing criminal work like this for 20 years. And to her, criminal gang means coordinated illegal activity. You make the drug order, I watch the corner for cops. But to her, this new way prosecutors were defining criminal gang more loosely and grounded in social media evidence, Natalie thought it meant kids could get in trouble too easily just for doing what kids naturally do online. And I'm like, I don't get this. My client has nothing to do with the gang. But here's the thing. Natalie still convinced Naquan to plead guilty. Because in her experience, if prosecutors throw up a bunch of pictures and videos of kids looking like gangsters, even if her client is just kind of in the general neighborhood of those kids, he'd be in trouble. It's scary to people, you know? 
gang signs and tags and all of that's scary to people. So, especially jurors, that's scary. She was worried that the jurors wouldn't be able to see past the image. That who these kids actually were individually and what Naquan's exact connection was to these guys and the fact that he actually didn't like hanging out, it just wouldn't matter. We live in a completely different world where what is in the video is what's real. By the time the summer of 2016 was over, 28 young men were arrested in an indictment describing them as members of a gang called Only My Brothers. The youngest was 16, the oldest was 21. Most of them were charged as adults, and they all pled guilty to felony charges. Their social media did them in. In Naquan's case, the prosecutor was reasonable, even compassionate. Naquan got less time than he could have, and in general, the attorneys representing the 28 kids told us that the prosecutors were relatively restrained. But the problem is deeper than these cases, and it's happening all over the country. Images of young men, mostly black and brown, posing as who they might be or could be or maybe even aspire to be, being used in court to help prove who they already actually are. I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm terrified that, um, and not just for young people, I'm terrified for all of us that things that we say and do online could be so easily misconstrued. This is Desmond Upton Patton, a professor at Columbia University. Desmond has a lab where he tracks beefs on social media, how they start, the emojis, the hashtags, and how they spread. He knows how violence can start online and then get out of control. But still, he's wary of the typical response to the problem, which is police setting up units to monitor social media and then rounding up large groups of kids at a time for gang affiliation or conspiracy, like often dozens at a time. And what I'm really concerned about, to be very honest, is is social media a new apparatus for mass incarceration that we're just not aware of? Not aware of because it's not like stop and frisk or driving while black. It doesn't happen in public, out in the open. It happens at police headquarters on a computer. But the end result is sometimes large masses of usually young black men getting rounded up and charged with knowingly furthering crimes their friends committed. And often the apparatus makes use of cheap shortcuts, pictures on Instagram that just kind of look gangy. We don't have the same concerns or worries when we see other kids who are hunting or shooting with guns. We don't drum up the same concerns for them. Um, we immediately have questions and want to dig in and extract and explain when we see young black and brown kids holding guns. But in another context, it's, it's you know, American. So true. When I was reporting the story, I was on Twitter and I saw a post of this blonde girl who had a picture of herself walking through college campus and carrying an AR-10 with a sign that says, come and take it. A lawyer in New York had tagged the picture and written, I have a client in jail for just being in a picture with someone with a gun. For his client, just being in a picture with a gun was cause for jail. But in a different case, All-American. White teens can flex all they want on Instagram in a way Black people just can't afford to do. The police aren't watching. Now, some people, even kids, told me that with all those kids locked up, the streets of Wilmington seemed safer, like they could go outside again. And shootings are down this year. I ran that idea by Desmond. It seemed actually important to the kids. I'm serious, because some people were like, Listen, it, the city, it calmed down. The city was safer. Like, it stopped retaliation. You know, Brandon got killed. Everybody was going to go out. It was going to be, like, all hell break loose, even worse than it was the year before. Um, I, I think that that particular explanation is an explanation that we use for folks that we don't care about and that we think are throwaway. And so, sure, um, they're off the street, um, but... Perhaps if we use social media in a different way to understand their life, to understand why they were involved in the negative behaviors in the first place, if we treated it as an assessment tool to actually help them and identify strengths among them, then maybe we wouldn't have seen some of the behaviors that we saw in the first place. So what if you took that video that got Naquan in so much trouble and you looked at it in the most generous way. You'd see two brothers who are really close, 
who'd been sharing a bedroom since they were little kids. They're home alone because their mom's out of the house, because she's a single mom and she works two jobs. And if you zoom into their faces, you'd see that Jaleel, although he's younger, is the protective one, while Naquan's a little dreamy. He lives in his head. Even now, when he paces and paces in prison. I just be sitting in my room brainstorming. Brainstorming what he can say to us or to the mayor or to the rapper Meek Mill, who's all about prison reform. So he can let people know that these days, a kid like him can get five years for a video. And if, like Desmond suggests, you use social media to identify strengths, you might be able to see it. What are you looking at here? I'm about to show you the, uh, the picture. These is pictures of everybody in the indictment. Like, Naquan is smart. He has a brain that never rests. When we met him, he brought a thick stack of documents. Under evidentiary rule 901B, authenticating the rules of evidence. Legal research, court papers. He spends hours in the law library. Under C-616, game participation. He can name every statute related to his case. And he even does research for other people in prison about their cases. I mean, that's a slander and defamation of character. He's a real pain in prison. But also, resume skills. He's self-motivated, synthesizes complex documents, persists despite huge obstacles, and is passionate about what he believes in. You just have to decide how you want to read the picture. It always seemed heartbreaking to me that the image could eclipse the real in a place like Wilmington. You'd expect that in a big, anonymous setting where no one knows anyone. But Wilmington's the opposite of that. Brandon's grandma knew his killer's mom. She'd been to her house a couple of times. It's alarming that even in such close quarters, people could edit out the context, make a 15-year-old Instagrammer a legitimate target in a gang war. How far is north side from west side and east side? Mm, well, you, you're talking about driving? Driving, I'll get over here in five minutes. So everything is five minutes away. I mean, to me, because I don't drive slow. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, right now, I'm just chilling and cruising because y'all with me. This is Mitch, who we met because he's dating Naquan's mom and because he acted as an unofficial guide for us. He knows everyone in town. And he said one reason why the violence is so bad here, besides poverty, guns, no jobs, is because if L.A. is like a stretch limo, Wilmington is a Hyundai. It's cramped. If you beef with someone on social media you will likely run into them at the corner store in a day or two, and one of you might have a gun. But when we asked him, would he ever leave Wilmington to get away from the violence, maybe head to the suburbs, he barely understood the question. It was like asking if he wanted to cut his arm off. Yeah, you move me out of here, but where's my friends at? Where's all my relationships at? You understand what I'm saying? They, they in the city. Hey! If it could happen even in a place like Wilmington, where relationships are so alive and real, then it means that we all have to be on alert. Watch for when we're putting out an image other people could manipulate, even people who know us. Watch for when we are editing out some details in other people's image to believe what we want to believe. At a time when image and real can blur so easily, it takes a certain vigilance to see things clearly. By the time we got to Wilmington, Brandon had strayed far from who he was off-screen. He'd become that kid who gets killed and then becomes a legend. People all over the city wore B-Wingo Memorial t-shirts. I saw like 10 different varieties. B-Wingo classic sneakers, tribute songs. There were several competing ones. So many kids had stories about how they'd seen him the day he died. And now, when his friends pose with their fingers in a B formation... It's not for only my brothers. It's for Brandon. He's the new symbol they rally around now. I thought Brandon's father, Brad, would love all this. But being the realist he is, he still stubbornly believes in the facts on the ground. He's not ready to accommodate the idea that image can engulf the real. And a lot of the ways people talk and talk about some mythical B-wingo do not sit well with him at all. But like, it's like, i never seen you a day in my life. You mean because you no feel clue who you are, but you act like you knew him. But it's like, oh, I'm so feel so bad. Like I'm saying, like you really don't have no clue, and we both know you have no clue. But you're so emotional about it. Like when did you know him? 
which sounds harsh, but it makes sense. He wants his real kid back, not this legend of B-Wingo. But Brandon's friends, the next generation, in the two years since Brandon died, they've gotten a lot more savvy about how to navigate between the image and the facts on the ground. Since You've Become a Martyr, I've Become a Lot Smarter is a lyric in one of the tribute songs. Lots of kids we interviewed said they no longer post pictures of themselves with guns or gang signs. They've learned the lesson. If you put out there a picture of who you want to be, someone could easily mistake it for who you are. And then you could end up shot or in jail. It is still scary out there. Really scary. 2019 rolled in, and the first person shot was Brandon's cousin, his best friend. To stay safe and alive, people have stopped letting other people manipulate their images. Instead, they do it themselves. He got clout. He got all the clout. That's the man with the clout. I don't got no clout. That's Keon from the living room again. And the man with all the clout is his cousin, Fami. When their two older cousins got shot, Fami became the first of the cousins to graduate from high school. And then maybe to overpower the death videos from that year and the morning memes, Fami started to flood his Facebook with pictures of him in a graduation gown, standing with his girlfriend or with his teacher or with his mom, Shamika. Best time was that graduation day. Stand and walk across that stage. And prom. Prom was nice, too. But graduation, to see my baby get a diploma, something that I didn't do. Couldn't ask for nothing more. Fami and his mom have that twin soul thing you sometimes see with a parent and a kid. Shamika stands in the middle of the living room, staring at Fami with tears streaming down her face. And Fami, who's sitting on the couch, stares back at her with tears streaming down his face. Very proud of my baby. He makes me proud every day. Can't ask for nothing better. Can't ask for nothing better. You put a picture of yourself on Facebook in a graduation gown. And just like with gang pictures, people don't ask questions. They don't bother with the details or the context. They just assume you're going places. And they might hold you to it. Fami still cruises through Brandon's Instagram and Twitter. He even DMs him sometimes. Like, bro, I love you. Like, I tell him, like, how I'm, how I'm feeling lately, you know, how much I, I really, like, wish he was still here. You really DM him sometimes? Yeah, yeah like I still like I be on his like I be going on his page like just looking at all his old pictures and all that. I be like I be just when I make a post like I always tag him, tag his um his Instagram in it or something, and like just see if like he gonna respond or something. But he thinks Brandon will see the messages in heaven that he might even respond in a dream someday. You think there's Facebook in heaven, Instagram in heaven? Hopefully. They probably can see it, but just can't say nothing back to us. Yeah. Yeah, it's like iPhone 10, iPhone 1 million. (laughs) (laughs) Fami and Kian know they live in a world where the boundaries between image and real are fluid, where online lives and facts on the ground can be interchangeable or real in different ways at the same time. They're fluent in the contradictions in a way that I'm only just catching on to. And in that world... A DM to heaven is only natural. That's Hannah Rosen. Stick around for a preview of next week's episode. On next week's episode of Invisibilia... Mostly clear weather continues. Tonight we'll forecast all... The story of a beloved TV weatherman. Everybody trusts James Spann, the weatherman. Lord Spann? Yeah. As he encounters a day filled with terrifying unknowns. And then all of a sudden, power goes off. Power went out. The phone went dead. The lights went out. The TV went off. You're brought down to your knees. Help. We look at our relationship with uncertainty, and we wonder... What do you do in the moments when you have no idea what to do? Maybe everything that we've thought was right is wrong. Maybe we're living life upside down. I I don't know. That's next week on Invisibilia. Oh, say that. (laughs) Say that. And it's national radio. 
That's it for today's show. Invisibilia is hosted by me, Elise Spiegel. And me, Hannah Rosen. Our show is edited by Anne Gudenkoff. Our executive producer is Kara Tallow. Invisibilia is produced by Yowei Shaw and Abby Wendell. Our project manager is Liana Simstrom. This episode was produced by Liza Yeager and Yowei Shaw. We had help from Mark Memmott and Micah Ratner. Fact-checking by Hillary McClellan and Bryn Winterbottom. Our technical director is Andy Huther. And our vice president of programming is Anya Grunman. This episode was mastered by Jay Sizz. Special thanks to Jeffrey Lane, Julie Carley, Emily Bogle, Jake Arlo, Taylor Haney, and David Goodhertz for all their help. Additional music for this episode provided by Blue Dot Sessions. To all our guides in Wilmington, Yasser Payne, Daryl Chambers, Derek Chambers, and Coley Harris. To the Benson family and to Paul Webster for sharing their memories. And to Tish, Letitia Jackson, thank you. And of course, Mitch, the best guide of all. Thank you also to Ashley Brown and Robert Baldwin III, and to the Burke kids in David Panish's class. You guys spoke some serious teenage wisdom to us. Thanks also to It's the Jam. That's his song you hear in the background on the stoop. Thank you to L Bucks for letting us use the song My Hurt, and to Super Savage for the song you're listening to right now, All Star. You can find them all hanging out in Wilmington, and you can find their music on SoundCloud. For more information about this music and to see original artwork by Christina Chung for this episode, visit www.npr.org slash invisibilia. And now for our moment of nonsense. All right, bitches be done. Done. Join us next week for more Invisibilia. Thank you so much for listening. We wanted to give you a heads up. Invisibilia is always, always looking for great new stories. So if you have a story to share, pitch it to us at npr.org slash invisibilia slash story.